what is toxic masculinity? It's a term that gets thrown around a lot nowadays, it seems. Does it mean that all forms of masculinity are toxic? That masculinity itself is inherently toxic? Or are just some forms of masculinity toxic? And if so, how do we recognize it? Which forms are toxic? At what point does masculinity descend from acceptable and into toxicity? Welcome to episode two of Deconstruction Junction, a podcast that uses philosophy to uncover unconventional interpretations of popular media. My name is Brad Dunn. I hope you enjoy the show today. First, I want to get some housekeeping stuff out of the way. I'm hoping to get a Patreon set up by next episode. I've never made a Patreon before, so I don't know much about it. If you'd like to recommend some funding goals or rewards, please shoot me a message. You can find me on the big three social media platforms. Look me up on Facebook as Brad Dunn, D-U-N-N-E dash author. My Twitter handle is braddunn1796, and my Instagram is yoloflaherty, Y-O-L-O-F-L-A-H-E-R-T-Y. Drop me a line, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, today's episode is called Shut the Gate, and I'm going to try and cash out some of the baggage surrounding quote-unquote toxic masculinity by way of the most masculine film of all time, 300. To do that, I'm going to draw on the philosophy of Jack Derrida, which will also help to explain the significance of this podcast's name. I will also be dipping into the 2007 adaptation of Beowulf as well. There will be plot spoilers for both of these movies, so if you haven't seen them, uh, you've been warned. If you know anything about Derrida, it's his ubiquitous association with the term deconstruction. You also probably know that the guy is super opaque and notoriously difficult to read. The term deconstruction is pretty dense and is often misinterpreted. Derrida uses the term as a particular technique for analyzing texts. Consequently, many times it's used as a fancy way of saying analysis, which to be honest, I'm a little guilty of um, for naming my podcast Deconstruction Junction. Not every one of these episodes is strictly a deconstruction as such. I'm going to get into some background on the term right now and hopefully elucidate Derrida's philosophy as best as I can. Uh, if you feel lost during the exposition, don't worry. I find deconstruction starts to make a lot more sense when you see it in action. So after I give it some background, I'm going to try and deconstruct the movie 300 with the goal of demonstrating what toxic masculinity is and what it looks like in action. Derrida is often referred to as a post-structuralist or even the post-structuralist. That's because of a lecture he gave entitled Structure, Sign, and Play in the Discourse of Human Sciences at a Structuralist Colloquium hosted by Johns Hopkins uh, in 1966, wherein he challenged key tenets of the structuralist movement and really changed the game moving forward. So let's start by defining structuralism, an intellectual movement that began with Swiss linguist Ferdinand de Saussure, whose concept of the linguistic sign was a major breakthrough uh, in the philosophy of language. Basically, a linguistic sign is comprised of a signifier, usually a word, and a signified, a thing. So uh, the squiggly lines, R-O-S-E, spell out the words rose. 
which represents the pretty flower. Pretty straightforward, right? Language is possible because we have these tiny units of meaning that reference things, actions, thoughts, emotions, concepts, whatever. But de Saussure's real contribution was his observation that signifiers and their signifieds share no essential relationship. That is to say, there is nothing fundamentally tying the letters R-O-S-E to that pretty flower. There's nothing about roses that gives rise to the word rose. After all, different languages use different sounding words to represent the same thing. Moreover, even onomatopoeic words vary across languages. Uh, this is significant because up until that point, philosophy of language was fixated on the idea that objects somehow gave rise to their representative words, that there is some force binding the signifier to the signified. However, de Saussure rejects such thinking and argues that signs gain meaning in contrast with other signs. So a rose is a rose because it isn't a tulip or a cow or whatever. It all works by virtue of a system. I mean, if you look up a definition of a word, you get more words. You never really get outside the system. Therefore, signs work within an overarching linguistic structure, hence structuralism. Although de Saussure was working strictly within linguistics, his work had a huge ripple effect throughout many other fields, such as anthropology, sociology, philosophy. These other thinkers were spurred on by the thesis that uh, the phenomena of human life are not intelligible except through their interrelations. These relations constitute a structure, and behind local variations in the surface phenomena, there are constant laws of abstract culture, as Simon Blackburn defines it. Claude Levi-Strauss, for example, is considered a pioneer in structural anthropology. Levi-Strauss looked at uh, a wide range of activities within a culture to study how meaning is constructed and reinforced. Concepts can be buttressed by seemingly disparate activities such as food preparation, sports, literary texts, etc. The key idea here, again, is that meaning is structural. However, Derrida would soon come along and expose cracks in the structuralist project and provide a new way forward. For Derrida, structuralism was too tidy. He took particular issue with linguistic structuralism. Derrida rejected the idea that words neatly contrasted each other in a tidy system. Rather, he argued that words bleed into one another. Each sign carries a trace of another sign, which is to say, since words achieve meaning by virtue of opposition, then they would also carry a trace of their opposing meaning. Each sign is thus always already self-contradictory. Uh, what we end up with is a more messy, arguably organic system or a non-system. Derrida calls these moments of contradiction aporias, a Greek word for impasse or puzzle. An aporia is a moment where a supposedly clear distinction breaks down and is exposed. The process by which aporias are discovered is known as deconstruction. And my favorite essay of Derrida's where he really demonstrates this process is uh, Plato's Pharmacy, which is found in his book, Dissemination. Uh, in Plato's Pharmacy, Derrida really hones in on how Plato, by way of Socrates, uses the Greek word pharmakon in the Phaedrus. Socrates relates to Lysias, the ancient Egyptian myth of Thuth and Thamoth. Apparently, ancient Egyptians all had lists for something. 
Thuth, the god of writing, offered King Thamus writing as a remedy that could help memory. But Thamus rebukes the gift, explaining that writing would only engender forgetfulness. The idea being that if you can write stuff down to remind yourself for later, then you'll start to let your memory atrophy. Thus, Thamus proclaims writing to be a poison, not a remedy. Interestingly, as Derrida points out, Socrates uses pharmacon in both these instances as both a remedy and a poison. Indeed, the Greek word encapsulates both simultaneously. The pharmacon is therefore a useful concept to consider things that are self-contradictory, ambivalent, and irreducible to simplistic binaries. Derrida states that the essence of the pharmacon lies in the way in which having no stable essence, no proper characteristics, uh, it is not in any sense of the word a substance. Moving forward, if we want to do a deconstructive reading of a text, we can start uh, by looking for its pharmacon. The key concept we're looking for here is something by which the text appears to be telling us something, but after careful analysis, we see that it's actually working against itself. Which brings us to 300. Uh, where is the pharmacon in 300, and how does it subvert the film's supposed message? A quick recap. Uh, based on the graphic novel by Frank Miller, 300 is a fictionalized account of the Battle of Thermopylae. The story centers around Leonidas, king of Sparta, who is faced with having to protect his kingdom from Xerxes' army, who is eagerly expanding the Persian Empire. On top of this, Leonidas must uh, also contend with a corrupt bureaucracy who are in Xerxes' pocket. Leonidas battles the Persian army with just 300 soldiers, hence the name. Uh, the Persians, or sorry, the Spartans set up their line of defense in the Hot Gates, a narrow passage the Persians must cross in order to reach Sparta. The setting nullifies the Persians' numeric advantage. The Spartans battle fiercely but are ultimately defeated. However, Leonidas is able to score a symbolic strike against Xerxes, laying the groundwork for an underdog victory of the Greeks over the Persians. Now, some of you might listen to this podcast and think that I'm slagging 300 or trying to tell you that you're not allowed to like it. That's not what I'm saying. This is not meant to be a review, although I will say that I do like 300. I especially enjoyed watching it in theaters when it came out. It works great as a cinematic spectacle. That doesn't mean there aren't issues with it that we have to probe. Moreover, this deconstruction isn't going to be about the typical criticisms we hear uh, with 300. You know, it's butchering of history, it's orientalism. Uh, what I want to look at with 300 is how it seems to be telling us one thing, but if we look a little closer, it's actually telling us the opposite. Uh, Richard Rorty defined deconstruction as highlighting uh, the accidental features of a text that can be seen as betraying or subverting its purportedly essential message. So what is 300 trying to tell us? What appears to be its essential message, as Rorty would say? From early on, I think the film is trying to tell the audience that homogeneity is stronger than heterogeneity, that the Spartan army is so strong because they are a singular homogeneous unit, whereas the Persian, Persian army is a heterogeneous motley patchwork quilt of competing units. 
this notion is established early in the film when the Spartans run into the Arcadians, who seem to have thousands of men. Daxus, leader of the Arcadians, says to Leonidas, uh, I was wrong to expect Spartan, Sparta's commitment to at least match our own. Leonidas then asks the Arcadians their professions. One is a potter, another is a blacksmith, but none of them are soldiers, whereas the 300 Spartans are all soldiers. Leonidas thus responds that he has brought more soldiers than Daxus did. This thesis is later proven as the Spartans defeat wave after wave of Persian forces. Despite uh, his vast resources, Xerxes cannot crack the Spartan regime. Uh, this reminds me of that analogy King Robert deploys in the first Game of Thrones season, uh, where he explains to Cersei why the Dothraki would have an advantage over the Westeros army. Uh, he says, uh, which is the bigger number, five or one? He holds an open hand and a closed fist. One army, a real army, united behind one leader with one purpose. And this is a uh, great military tactics and all, but taken to his logical conclusion, you pretty much get the White Walkers, but uh, now I'm digressing. Uh, so back to 300, where in the end, the Spartans are ultimately undone. They are betrayed by Ephialtes, a deformed child of Sparta, whose parents fled to save him from infanticide. Earlier in the film, we learn that babies who do not fit the Spartan mold are thrown onto a pile and left to die. Uh, in an instance of extreme Homeric naturalism, Ephialtes' twisted body mirrors his corrupted character. Resentful, resentful that Leonidas won't let him in his army, Ephialtes sells the Spartans out to Xerxes by revealing a secret passage through the hot gates. So the Spartans are undone by that which gave them their strength, their homogeneity. They probably could have won had Leonidas just let Ephialtes into the army. Ephialtes even says that he doesn't need to be on the front lines or anything. He just wants some kind of position to fulfill his dream of being in the Spartan army. Uh, he could be like a water boy or something. But Leonidas, uh, he can't let him in because that would go against precisely what makes the Spartans strong. They're inflexible. The Spartan army is strong because it separates the wheat from the chaff. Any weakness is expunged to the point that they practice eugenics. Therefore, the Pharmacon in 300 is the army itself, the 300 Spartans. Their code is supposed to make them unbeatable, but their rigidity opens up a vulnerability, an aporia, which is exploited by Ephialtes and Xerxes. Uh, homogeneity gives the Spartans strength initially, but the Persians, who embrace heterogeneity and thus Ephialtes, ultimately win. Uh, let's push this analysis a little further. We can point to the hot gates as a nice objective correlative for all this. By the way, an objective correlative is basically a metaphor where a physical object represents something abstract like an idea or an emotion. The hot gates is a narrow passage, much like the Spartan army. But this narrowness gives way to an aporia, represented by an actual hole in the hot gates. And let's look at the Spartans. They are peak manly men. I mean, how many gym memberships were sold thanks to Gerard Butler's six-pack in the movie? Leonidas' masculinity is contrasted not only by Ephialtes' deformity, but also by Xerxes' femininity. Leonidas is an austere king, whereas Xerxes is flamboyant. 
There's even a subtle hint of homoeroticism in the way Xerxes caresses Leonidas's shoulder in that one scene. Uh, the message here, I believe, is clear. The Spartans are good not only because they are homogenous, but also because they are supremely masculine. The film really binds the two concepts here. And this is how I interpret toxic masculinity. Guys cleave to antiquated concepts of manhood, like aggression and sensitivity, refusing to show vulnerability. When I was diagnosed with depression in 2005, it was doubly devastating because not only was it painful in itself, but it also went against what I thought being a man was supposed to be. A man overcomes his feelings, and he certainly doesn't talk about them. But I also overcame my depression and anxiety by drawing on ideas of masculinity, like facing your fears even and especially when you feel weak and afraid. So masculinity is a pharmacon. It can give you strength or it can poison you. When it becomes rigid and inflexible, like the Spartan army, it becomes toxic. Alright, for those of you who are still with me, you might be thinking like I did when I first got into Derrida. Yeah, okay, I get it. Words have multiple meanings. I see they can be ambiguous even under the best circumstances. But doesn't that mean communication is impossible? What's the point of trying to say anything if we're just going to end up subverting our own intentions? It all feels very nihilistic. Um, Derrida's response here, I think, is twofold. Firstly, we must operate under erasure, sous-rature in the original French. With regards to writing, it involves crossing out a word but leaving it there anyway to signify that it is inadequate yet necessary, which is to say, I'm acknowledging that this word isn't wholly suitable, but it's the best I can do given the limitations of language at the moment. Derrida actually got this idea from Heidegger who also struggled with the difficulty of whether we can truly define any term. So in order to be able to communicate with others, we must all acknowledge that words can be slippery, but we must just accept it and carry on. Um, Derrida's second response to the charge of nihilism is, I think, to play, to embrace the ambiguity of language and have fun with it, to be creative and artistic, feeling free to reinvent concepts as circumstances change. Uh, take masculinity, for example. I said that uh, at my, f my that my first antiquated notions of masculinity held me back from treating my depression. However, I learned to alter my concepts of masculinity in order to heal. We can use this approach to other present-day issues affecting men as well. Like, for example, stay-at-home dads. Men have always been portrayed as the breadwinner and the woman as the homemaker. However, nowadays men are uh, staying at home more to raise their kids. This can be for a variety of reasons. Let's say you're a guy with a family who just lost his job and uh, now it's only your wife who's working. So the best way to serve your family is to manage the home and the kids while your wife is the principal source of income. A lot of men wouldn't feel comfortable with that. It's not the image of masculinity we're used to. But what are your options? Sit at home and pout while your wife works all day, then come home and cooks and cleans? To me, that's just childish. You know, uh, I think being a man means doing whatever needs to be done to help your family. In this case, that means manning up and doing the dishes and preparing meals. So that's another example of playing with the concept and re-engineering uh, it in a Derridian sense. 
with that in mind, what would be a more Doridian approach to 300 and its subject matter? I'd point to Beowulf, uh, arguably better known as Uncanny Valley, the movie. If you're looking for a good adaptation of that source material, I would suggest the criminally underappreciated Beowulf and Grendel, starring Leonidas himself, Gerard Butler. But there's something really interesting about Beowulf that's worth a closer look. Also, it came out in 2007, uh, the same year as 300, and has a similar sword and sorcery aesthetic, which I find very intriguing. Uh, I was pretty dismissive of Beowulf when I first saw it. Then I later learned that Neil Gaiman had actually written the screenplay along with Roger Avery, which really surprised me. So I gave it another shot, and while I think there's a lot of problems with the direction and all that motion capture, there's an interesting idea at play in the script. The film seems to be self-conscious of the cycle of destruction wrought by toxic masculinity. Beowulf arrives in Denmark and agrees to help King Hrothgar defeat the monster Grendel. After he does so, Grendel's mother, a water demon, retaliates. Beowulf ventures into her cave and finds that she's actually Angelina Jolie. She promises to make Beowulf king if he gives her a son to replace Grendel. Beowulf agrees, because obviously, duh, then returns to announce that he's killed her. Hrothgar isn't, isn't fooled, though. He, too, was seduced by Angelina and begot Grendel. The film jumps in time, and now Beowulf is in an unhappy marriage with Hrothgar's wife. The kingdom is then besieged by a golden dragon, which we learn is Beowulf and Angelina's son. The metaphor is clear. The heroic process of becoming king lays the groundwork for how that kingdom is ultimately destroyed. The sun is the cycle of violence perpetuated by each of these kings. Uh, and the last scene shows Beowulf's friend Wyglaf about to be seduced by Angelina, thus renewing the cycle once more. These guys can't seem to help themselves. They're propelled by the code they live by. Making Grendel and the dragon sons of Hrothgar and Beowulf is something Gaiman and Avery added to the legend. And this is just one of several other subtle changes to the story. Grendel is depicted as almost childlike. In fact, his appearance and behavior strikes me as someone born with fetal alcohol syndrome, which is appropriate because Hrothgar is portrayed as a drunken womanizer. And most importantly, Beowulf is a flawed man as opposed to a perfect shining paragon of uber-masculinity. Vis-a-vis Grendel's mother, who in the film is more of a succubus seductress than demon, is able to exploit these foolhardy men. Ultimately, all these innovations in the script bring a self-awareness to this tale of macho heroism that 300 lacks, and that's why I think it's more Doridian. The screenwriters played with the legend of Beowulf to uncover an interesting new angle to approach the material. It's really too bad that Robert Zemeckis didn't live up to the script's potential. Alright, and that concludes this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts, feel free to drop me a line on any of my social media accounts. Also, hit me up at braddunne.ca. If you want to support this channel, uh, at the moment, the best way would be to give me a solid rating and review on iTunes and also to subscribe to my other channels and just generally engage. Uh, finally, I'm pretty pumped to announce that my debut novel, after Dark Vapors will be out October 15th. That's less than two months' time. Uh, it's a werewolf story set in Newfoundland, Canada, my home. 
Uh, my publisher is Engine Books, E-N-G-E-N. -E you can also check them out on social media for more info. Cheers.